0: I am burning uh, with a message that I'm going to be doing a series on over the next eight weeks about uh, the forerunner calling, and, and the, the series will be called The Forerunner Mandate. And I feel very stirred. I, my heart has been uh, locked in for a couple weeks on uh, the issues of being a people that uh, prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi 3.1, it describes that God will send forth a messenger. And I believe that's uh, a messenger. And there is an individual, but I believe there's a messenger company that's coming forth at the end of the age to prepare the way of the Lord's coming. And uh, I believe that's for all those, uh, whosoever will. And so uh, I, am, I have been uh, really just, in my heart, burning with this. And I, and I want to proclaim, I want to lift a trumpet to, to my mouth and uh, proclaim a trumpet blast as loud as I can over the next six to eight weeks about the forerunner calling. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Proverbs 29, where we talk about a, a familiar scripture. From there, we'll find our way to Haggai chapter 2. But I feel stirred and gripped and energized and encouraged and other things too. Proverbs 29, verse 18. We've seen this verse and heard it taught a lot of times. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. I've said it and it's been said that the greatest gift that God can give to the human heart is revelation. Revelation. God telling God about himself. I mean, God telling people about God. God telling people about himself is the greatest gift that the uh, human heart can receive from, from God. That we would know him more. We would see him in a more clear way. Our hearts would come alive in the revelation of who he is. And Proverbs 29 is trying to tell us this. That, and this word for revelation is prophetic vision. That it, there's, there's prophetic vision that's available to the people of God. And in comprehending the prophetic vision from heaven, the things that God wants to reveal to us, that it causes us to live in a focused and aggressive way. He says, without the prophetic vision, people will cast off restraint they won't be restrained, they won't be focused, they won't be disciplined. They'll live their life in a very laissez-faire kind of way. But with, with the prophetic vision, with a comprehension of what God's doing in the earth in the hour in which they live, with the prophetic vision, their hearts will be focused, they will be uh, urgent, and they'll live with a directive and a mandate inside. And, and I feel this strongly, that there's an importance that we have to have in our community and that's tying in to God's prophetic vision for the hour in which we live. This, uh, this verse, many times we've heard it taught about you've got to write out a five or ten year vision for your life. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate the uh, teaching that we hear on that. But that's really not what this verse is talking about. Uh, and just a little side note, neither is the verse in Habakkuk chapter 2. Write the vision, make it plain upon the tablet. And we'll come back to that in a, in a later uh, session. But uh, those are not about getting a five- to ten-year vision, I promise you. Uh, There's something way broader that the Scripture is trying to uh, uh, dial us into (coughs) with way broader implications than uh, just our little five- or ten-year plan. I believe it's good to plan, but I think it's good to plan with the uh, Spirit of God and uh, the Holy Spirit Directive. And, uh, and then that way we can plan according to His will and not according to some kind of you know, earthly desire to see our kingdom established. And so when He says in Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no revelation, prophetic revelation, He's talking about the spirit of revelation resting upon a community of people so that they would comprehend the way of the Lord in the hour in which they live and therefore, have a lifestyle that reflects this, that they have the vision of God. The people. See, it's a corporate idea. It says, without the revelation, the people, they'll cast off restraint. They won't live focused. They won't live disciplined. They won't live with a directive and a mandate from heaven. So therefore, this, beloved, we've got to comprehend the prophetic vision, the revelation of heaven for our day and our time as it relates to us as a community. We've got to comprehend what is it God's saying to the earth right now, and how does that apply to us in the house of prayer? Now, I want to just propose this to you, that the idea that night and day prayer exists, we've talked about this at in, in, in length and other times, but the idea that night and day pr- uh, prayer exists in Atlanta is a prophetic sign that God has massive plans for the city. He's given us night and day prayer as a mercy stroke. He's given us night and day prayer as a mercy stroke in this city because there's a time of great shaking and a time of great tumult coming. And night and day prayer is God's sign, Luke 18 tells us, that it is God's sign that He's going to release speedy justice. Justice in a quick and a comprehensive way in a a region. And so the idea that we're standing in a community that has night and day prayer as its centerpiece is a prophetic sign to us, not only of God's intention of what He intends to do in Atlanta, but also of the hour that we live in the earth. And so here's, here's how it goes for us. Because you know, I've been talking to the Lord about some things, and He's, He's challenging my heart. And, and I realize this, that we've spent a lot of time... Uh, explaining our value system uh, and, and calling people to our value system to live it out day by day. Uh, we've called people to intimacy and to come alive in the knowledge of God. We've called them to the, the bridal paradigm and the father heart of God and comprehending God's desire and delight for people. And, and we express that intimacy by being a community that gives ourselves to prayer as the main and first thing we do. And so we express that intimacy with the Lord through the the value of night and day prayer. That is our mandate, night and day. And so we call people to intimacy. We call people to a fasted lifestyle, to embrace the value system of the kingdom of God through the Sermon on the Mount, to live simply, uh, financially, so that they can give in in an extravagant way, and to fast and pray as, as normal Christianity, you know. Uh, in our community, the guy shows up and goes, man, I fast once a week. We go, that's great. <laughs> so do 250 people. <laughs> you know, that's really wonderful. That, for us, that's not a big religious, you know, emblem that, that you can wear. We just think it's normal. And that's the way, that's the way we want to see it. And, uh, and so we call people to live lean in so many areas. And give their best of their time and give the best of their life to the Lord. They fast all the things that, that the, earth, the, the world can offer them. To go hard into God and live the fasted lifestyle. And um, we call people to a vision for fullness. Believing this, that there's a massive revival. A great, I call it the the capital R, big R revival to come. That we have not seen anything yet. And though there may be swirls of, of the power and the presence of God released Uh, You know, in our city, and other places in the nation, there may be 10,000 or 100,000 swept in. We will keep our gate focused. We will keep our, our gaze straight because we're believing for a billion plus souls. We're believing for the time when the heavens open globally. We're believing for the time when miracles on demand is the normal reality of the church in the earth. And we're believing for the great outpouring of the Spirit of God, the in the last days it shall come to pass, outpouring of the Spirit of God. And we're not going to get, you know, uh, sort of, you know, misdirected by smaller little outpouring. We want them and we love them. We'll high-five them and get in on them. But we will not pull off of our mandate to pray night and day until something pops in a global way. There's coming a global open heaven. Power, signs, wonders, miracles will be released in the earth. I will not back off of that point one bit. Lord's been dealing with me about that for 12 years. I was just going back over my own little personal prophetic history and realizing God began to tune me in in 1995 to that truth that He is going to release revival in a measure that the earth has never seen. I called it a catastrophic revival. I remember I did my first five day fast. It was my first extended fast of any kind, and uh, November of the end of uh, 1996, and uh, and the Lord began to speak to me at the end of that fast about He gave me a five-page prof- prophetic word about a global revival that was going to take place. It was going to be a catastrophic revival. <laughs> now that's I've, you never you don't really think of a revival and a catastrophe being one thing. But it was going to be a catastrophic revival that was going to shock the systems of the earth. And uh, I believe that that's coming. I believe in a vision for fullness that the people of God will be filled with all the fullness of God on the earth before this thing wraps up. There's a time coming, beloved. We've not seen yet. It's going to be uh, fantastic and fearful and incredible. And then uh, also we have a value to, to touch and outreach to the poor of the earth. We want to give extravagantly to the poor of the earth and to, to make impacts in places that, uh, you know, much of us in the West, we don't really think about often. And, and we want to give extravagantly uh, in offerings. And uh, we just, you know, we just sent a team and we send thousands of dollars into India there. And, and we're just about to send a team into Haiti. And there's, I could go down the list and it's not, I don't want to, you know, toot our own horn, but this is a value that we will continue to, to trumpet. And though we have massive needs here, we will continue to send finance all over the globe, because we want to do the thing that, that they admonished. Paul said the one thing was to not forget the poor, and, and that's where we want to live, is to not forget the poor, continually sowing into the poor. And so the thing about it is, all of these values, they call us to live a certain way day to day, but what I'm realizing is this, that while we've trumpeted these values, intimacy, and, and sermon on the mount, and, and, and a vision for revival, and and offerings to the poor, we, we continue to weave in the understanding that we're living at the end of the age. And, and we've preached series and, and all, everything in our school of ministry that we're living in an hour of, that's urgent for the earth. But, but what I'm recognizing is this. Our value system and our day-to-day, day, the way that we call uh, ourselves to live day-to-day, day, it hasn't tied in at the level it needs to in understanding that there are three and a half years coming at the end of this age That are going to be the time of the greatest crisis that the planet has ever seen. And we live these values now unto getting a root system in God that will enable a people to stand in the earth in the time of the greatest crisis the world will ever, ever see. And so the reason why we do the day in and day out of showing up, fasting, praying, sowing into the, the poor of the earth, intimacy with God, and living the Sermon on the Mount, the reason why we do that is unto this, that at the end of the age, it's the time of greatest crisis that the planet will ever see. And because we believe that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime, we are called to be a people that will prepare... Prepare for those last three and a half years. Be prepared personally in our own hearts and prepare the earth for the coming of the Lord. If there is a disconnect between the necessity of preparation for those last three and a half years and the value system, you know what we'll do? Cast off restraint. If we, we don't tie in the prophetic vision of the end of the age and what the scripture, the prophetic scriptures say about the return of the Lord and how that is clearly coming in a time that's very soon, if we don't tie that point in, we will cast off restraint without the prophetic vision. And so I'm burning with this. I want to lift a trumpet over the next, next couple of months. I want to sound a trumpet blast that gets us tuned in, it sharpens our vision, sharpens our focus, and gets us tuned in to what God is doing at the end of the age, to the drama that's about to unfold, that we would be a people that live with the comprehension that we're preparing for the last three and a half years. The one way I say it is this, we are on a 30-year runway for a three and a half year flight. And most of us don't have any kind of a picture of what that is. As I said earlier, you know the Lord, He began to deal with me powerfully at the end of it was 2005 and 2006, but really, He uh, spoke to my heart and pierced me through and at the end of uh, 1996 I'm sorry, not 2006, 1996, about 12 years ago. And uh, I have not been the same since. He began to deal with me about the issue of revival, and so everything that I began to, to focus on was preparing a people to live in the time of the greatest revival the earth has ever seen. And uh, I remember just being gripped with it. And in about six months period of time, I read about 25 or 30 books on revival. I wanted to find out everything there was to know, in the, uh, you know, that there was out there about revival. I wanted to know about historic revivals, biblical revivals. I wanted to get my heart around this idea. And then when I did, what I realized was all of a sudden I began to carry a seed. For revival, and when I would go into places, the power of God would be released, you know, and, and it wouldn't start, you know, massive swirls. I've I've never done that sort of you know big swirl of revival in a place, but I would I would release something because of this thing that I was carrying because God had put this in my heart deeply. And uh, and when I went to Kansas City in 2003, my family moved out there. For me, I was, I was thinking, let's do night and day prayer so we can get in on the great revival that's to come at the end of the age. And what I found out was this. That there is a much broader uh, painting, a much broader picture than simply revival at the end of the age. Revival is one facet of Jesus' end-time action plan. It's one facet, but the end-time action plan of the Lord has a bunch of different features that are included uh, broader than revival. When I realized that this thing that God was marking me with was broader than a global revival, and it actually was something that was going to culminate with the return of the Lord Jesus to the planet. The return of the Lord to the planet and the establishment of His kingdom on earth. All of a sudden, all my systems went into shock Everything shifted, but I realized this because I tweaked the way that I was living and I'd focused my life over the issue of revival. It wasn't that great of a transition to make to focus on revival as one facet of a broader plan, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the planet. Beloved, think about this. If Jesus is returning to the planet... And it's crazy, because whenever I go uh, and speak places, I go, how many believe? You know, I don't do it every single time, but I go, how many people believe the Lord is returning to the planet, perhaps even in, in this generation, in your lifetime? And I'll ask the question, and 70 to 80% of the hands will, will, will be raised. The majority will raise their hand. Yes, I believe the Lord's returning in this generation, perhaps even in my lifetime. If that is the case, what are we doing right now to prepare for that greatest time of tumult the planet has ever seen. Now consider this. We just voted a new president into office in the United States. We've just voted a new president into office and it's massive upheaval in the society. And people are angry and people are glad and people are, you know, all sorts of tumult is happening and this is totally peaceful. And it's a democratic process. When the Lord Jesus returns, he is going to take leadership of 266 plus nations. And the Bible tells us that all the kings of the earth will be arrayed against him. Hello. There is a, there is a hostile takeover coming of the planet by Jesus Christ. And that is going to be extremely tumultuous. And that is what we're to prepare for, beloved. The time of the earth. It's called Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30. In Matthew 24 it says, If that time hadn't been shortened, no one would have lived. <laughs> All flesh would have been destroyed if that last three and a half years, the great tribulation, if it would, if, if it would not have been shortened down to three and a half years, it says no flesh would have lived. And that is the birth canal to birth the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's going to be the uh, entry point for the kingdom of God to be released on the planet. And Jesus is coming back. Not, he's not coming back as the central. I used to, this is how my eschatology was. That Jesus would be coming back as the central piece of a big revival. I tell you, Jesus is coming back as the central piece of a global revolutionary movement in which Christians will have to stand against uh, a usurper known as Antichrist. And so we've got to tie in the way that we live daily with those last three and a half years so that the way that we live daily makes sense in light of the end of this age and the age to come. And that's a question that should resonate in our minds. Does how we live every single day, does it make sense in light of the last three and a half years? Is the way I'm spending my time and spending my money, is the way I'm training my children, does that make sense in light of the greatest tumult the planet will ever see? The last three and a half years of the age. And so I think this, that we've got, to, we've got to transmit and translate our value system. We've got to translate them into uh, understanding the end of the age. We've got to, we've got to con- make a connection there so that we live preparing the earth for the coming of the Lord. And that there, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, is the key feature to the forerunner calling or the forerunner mandate. What God does is He raises up a forerunner to go before Him to prepare the way for His coming. We uh, we don't have a, a, a real understanding of this, but the, the Scripture is full of explanations of this. And so, I was looking at... Uh, well, I've just been looking at so many verses. But Matthew 16. You know what? Jesus, His main rebuke of the Pharisees has to do with this. That they did not comprehend the time and the season in which they lived. Because you can look at the time of the the sky and, and you can look at, you know, if it's red and you understand what, what time it is and what kind of storms are going to happen. But you do not understand the time of your visitation. And, uh... I think this, if we believed that the Lord was going to return, we would be living in a way that would uh clearly make that understood that we that we understood that he's coming we would our lives would show that by how we live if we if we say say we had prophetic insight and say we believed there was a massive uh uh tornado system that was going to hit Atlanta and we knew it was going to hit in two weeks, we wouldn't just sort of like do whatever for two weeks. We'd be storing up water and getting food and, and coming with backup energy supplies and, and all sorts of things to prepare for the tornado system that we know is coming. Well, beloved, something way more intense than a couple tornadoes is coming. And I'm not saying, hey, let's just start storing up water. I'm not, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to live our lives in a manner that prepares us for the return of the Lord of the planet, and for those three and a half years, the great tribulation. Okay, so when I began to study this thing, and I began to look at it, and I've, and I've gone hard for five years. I've gone hard studying what the Scripture says about the generation in which the Lord returns for about five years, with fasting and prayer, made it my hobby, made it my continual focus. When I began to go uh, hard into this, I realized that Jesus is coming back, and when He comes back to the planet, like I said, He's not coming back as the central figure of a great revival. He's coming back uh, to end the worst military conflict the planet has ever seen. He's coming back to end the worst military conflict the planet has ever seen. Matthew 24, 21 and 22 says, unless those days were shortened, no one would have lived. It's the prophetic voice describing what those last three and a half years will look like. Now this is what's going to happen. There will be a man named Antichrist. The Bible calls him Antichrist, the son of perdition. He's got a bunch of names. The proud man, the little horn. He's got all sorts of names. The Assyrian the king of Babylon. He's, he's called by multiple names. And This man will be possessed by Satan himself. Revelation 12 describes Satan will be cast out of the heavenly realm and cast into the earthly realm. And when he's cast into the earthly realm, he will actually inhabit this man, and he will give this man all of his authority and all of his power and all of his throne. This human will be possessed by Satan. He's the Antichrist. The opposite of Christ. The false Christ. That man will take over, the Bible says, all the nations of the earth. He will take over all the nations. He will do it hostily in this, that he will demand every person on the planet to worship him. And if they do not worship him, he will have them executed. And he will put into place something called the mark of the beast system. And that is a system that will demand every person to worship Antichrist or They will not be able to buy or sell. And those who will not worship him, they will lose their lives. Now, in the middle of that, hear me, in the middle of all that, there will be a Christian resistance movement. That's my term. It's not a biblical term. But it's clear that there are a large number of believers who are standing against Antichrist, and they're not bowing the knee, and they're worshiping Jesus And they're moving in power, signs, wonders, and miracles. And many of them, Daniel 11 tells us, that many of these Christians who are resisting Antichrist, they are calling many people to righteousness. In Daniel 11, they're called the people of understanding who lead many to righteousness. Now, simultaneously with that, many of those of understanding, many of these Christians that are resisting Antichrist, they'll lead many to righteousness, but many of them will lose their lives. There's multiple verses, Daniel 7, Daniel 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13. It makes it clear that they will, many of them, will be martyred as they resist Antichrist and his rule on the planet. Now, if this was a story or some movie, it would be incredible. But beloved, what if this is your life? What if these ideas are your life? And I believe they are. See, before I explain that, now if I would have taken up a Paul and said, how many believe the Lord's going to return in our lifetime? Whoa, we all believe that. What about this part? Do we believe what the Scripture says about this uh, man that's going to arise, that's going to take over the globe and martyr Christians in mass as there's a Christian resistance movement that stands in, in his way? Do we believe those points? Because if we do, then we've got to live our lives day to day Unto that reality, standing against this man that will take over the planet. Or else, what are we doing? So there's a company of believers. They're going to move in power. They're going to resist Antichrist. Many of them are going to be put to death. But this is going to be the prayer movement at the end of the age. And they will resist Antichrist and resist Satan through spiritual warfare, through fasting and prayer. They will be standing against the, the, uh, the enemy of our souls. They'll be standing against Satan through fasting and prayer. And they will actually be moving things and shifting things in the spiritual atmosphere unto this. The Spirit and the Bride cry, Come, Lord Jesus, And there will be a day when Jesus will come. Now, when he comes, he's going to finalize the revolution. (laughs) Because what it is, is this. You have this man, he takes over every nation of the earth. You have Christians who uh, revolt against that. They stand against that. They do not bow to that. It's like Daniel not bowing and getting thrown in the lion's den. They stand against Antichrist and his rule over all the earth. Many lose their lives. So there's this resistance, this revolutionary movement. But when, uh, and so they're crying out, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. And so when the Lord comes, he comes to finalize the Christian resistance movement, the revolution. He comes to finalize the revolution. And he actually, the Bible says, he overthrows the thrones of all nations. He's going to return in unprecedented military might. Do we have a picture of the Jesus that moves in unprecedented military might? He's going to return with all the hosts of heaven, the glorified saints. He's going to finalize the revolutionary movement. He's going to overthrow Antichrist and establish his kingdom in every nation of the earth. Now turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. For me, it's not enough that I live our values and just become like a good Christian. I want to be a good Christian, but I want to be part of the Malachi 3-1 company. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before me who prepare the way. I want to be one, like John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to go into these things. The the scriptures are so clear. John the Baptist, while he was a fulfillment of being the messenger that goes before the Lord, he's clearly not the final fulfillment of it. There's clearly a whole nother uh, fulfillment of it before the Lord comes in dramatic power to release judgment on the planet. Now look at Haggai 2. I love Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah, they were prophets that prophesied to the nation of Israel after the nation returned from Babylonian captivity. It really wasn't the nation that returned. It was a very small segment, 50,000 or so people. But after they returned, and they were given the task of rebuilding the house of prayer, rebuilding the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord had night and day prayer in it, it's supposed to have had it the entire time, but then you'd have kings that would turn away from the Lord and they would stop the night and day prayer. But they return from Babylonian captivity with 50,000 people to rebuild the temple of the Lord and set up night and day prayer again in Jerusalem. And this man named Zerubbabel, he was the governor and he was given authority to lead the nation into rebuilding the temple and reestablishing themselves back in the land. Joshua was the high priest He was the head of the religious system. Zerubbabel was the governor. He was the head of the political system, the governmental system. And so Haggai and Zechariah, they show up and they're prophesying. And what their prophecies are to do are to help the people have prophetic vision to build the house of prayer. That's what what the book of Haggai and Zechariah are even all about. Giving prophetic vision to the people that are building the house of prayer to not stop, to don't quit. And to build the house of prayer. So when Haggai shows up, what's happened is this. The people had laid the foundation for the temple, but they hadn't completed the work. They'd let the foundation sit there for 16 years. They laid the foundation and stopped the work and began to build their own houses and, and just do their own thing. And he goes through and explains the reason why there's famine among you right now, and the reason why your finances are failing and everything is going poorly and there's drought, the reason why is because you haven't built the house of the Lord. And that's what Haggai says. And so then he, he, he uh, brings the word of the Lord, the people repent, and they begin to build. And then he shows up and he says this, and Verse 3, he says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? The point is, what does it look like to you now? Because there's several of you guys that went into exile that saw the the, the temple before. And and you're here now, and you're looking at the foundations. and, And what do you think about it? And the answer, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is they didn't like it. They saw how small it was compared to the previous temple, and their hearts were broken. And they were, they were uh, wailing and weeping. It says, in comparison with it, with the former temple, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Because you guys are thinking this is nothing. And you don't comprehend the hour in which you live. You don't comprehend the significance of what it is that you're doing. Because It says nothing in your eyes. But this is so important. Look at verse 4. He goes, yet, now be strong Zerubbabel. Says the Lord. And be strong Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong all you people. Says the Lord. He goes, and work, because I am with you. I am with you. He goes, I'm giving you the same word in verse 5. He goes, I'm giving you the same word that I gave my people when they left Egypt, that I am with you. Do the work. He goes, build, build the house of prayer. And and then he goes, he goes, and I think it's, and here's why, verse 6. For thus, the, the for thus says the Lord. I believe that's a, here's why you're supposed to do the work. For thus says the Lord, once more, it's a little while. He says, it's coming. He goes, I will shake heaven and earth. The sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. From verse six and verse seven, those verses are unfulfilled prophecy. That temple which Haggai was prophesying to them to build, it was never filled with a greater glory. These are unfulfilled prophecy. What happened? Haggai, in the middle of calling them to build, he goes ahead and the spirit of prophecy, uh, eschatological prophecy, comes on him and he begins to point to the time that the temple will be filled with greater glory when Jesus Christ himself is actually in the temple ruling the nations. What does he do? He ties the building of the temple in their day Two, the shaking that's going to come to the nations at the end of the age and the Lord Jesus ruling the earth. He goes, I want you to build because, and the point would be, you are a prophetic type, you are a picture of a prayer movement that's yet to come at the end of the age when they must build and the shaking will come on the whole planet. You know, Jesus, he hasn't shaken the heavens and the earth like he promised in Haggai. But I tell you what, the writer of Hebrews tells us he is, he quotes Haggai too and he says, he's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Beloved, that time's in front of us. The shaking is in front of us. It's not something that's happened. This is not historical, oh, that was nice what happened back then. It hasn't happened yet. And he ties it directly in the building of the house of prayer with the shaking that's going to come to the nations. Have you thought about what it looks like when Jesus Christ shakes heaven and earth? When he shakes everything until finally all the nations flood to him. They come to him, they call the desire of all nations. Well, he gives a little bit further insight in verse 21. He gets another word on the same, uh, right there at the same time. I guess it's a a couple months later. He gets another word. Verse 21. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor. Speak to him and say this. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. The Lord. He goes, be encouraged, Zerubbabel. Okay, encourage me, Lord. Like, put yourself in his shoes. Zerubbabel's got a crazy building project going on. He goes, I'm going to encourage you with a prophetic word, Zerubbabel. Here it is. Keep working. Why? Because I am going to shake everything. I am going to overthrow every nation. Has there ever been a time when Jesus has overthrown all the nations? There's never been a time that that's happened. Therefore, this prophecy is unfulfilled. It will be fulfilled or it's not prophecy. It is prophecy and therefore it will be fulfilled. It's not figurative. Don't think of it as figurative. Don't go, well, he overthrew them in a figurative way somehow. No. He goes, he goes Zerubbabel, be encouraged. Build a house of prayer, because I am going to shake the earth in a time that's yet to come, and I'm going to overthrow all nations. Beloved, that's a time that's in front of us. So when I say that Jesus Christ is going to return to the planet with military might like the planet has never seen before, When I say that, what I'm talking about is this. The overthrowing of the throne of every nation. Now why is he going to have to overthrow their thrones? He's going to have to overthrow their thrones because those thrones are going to ally with this man called Antichrist. Every nation is going to worship this man. And so when Jesus returns... It's, it's very interesting, but Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 tell us this, that all nations come together to make war against Jesus. And we've got this mentality that Jesus splits the sky and everything just sort of goes, whoosh, and we all turn into little fat babies floating on clouds, wearing togas, playing harps. But that is not what the Scripture tells us. The scripture tells us that Jesus will land on the planet. And he will begin to trod nations as a warrior king. And we have a massive disconnect. Beloved, oh, hear me. We don't get the God of the Bible. We, we've, what we've done mostly is we've made a God in our own image, a God that's palatable to us, one that we can receive. But we don't get the God of the Bible, the one who actually overthrows the thrones of nations. The God of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 63 and Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 25 and Revelation 19. I mean, there's so many chapters and it describes God. It describes Jesus as the one who will overthrow kingdoms. He will tread them. He'll release the wrath of God on these nations that have, they they ally against him with Antichrist. And I've been meditating on these thoughts, but... We have a great pallet for Jesus, the one who sheds his blood for the nations of the earth. But we have almost no pallet for Jesus, the one that sheds the blood of the nations. Isaiah 63 says, who is this one coming up from Basra? With dyed garments from Edom. That's modern day Jordan. That's where that is. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's riding. He says he's striding across the land in the greatness of his strength. And the question, the prophetic question comes, why are your garments red? Why are they red and stained with blood? He says, I have trodden the nations in my wrath and their blood is upon me. Do we have a pallet for that one? Because I promise you, beloved, I promise you. Oh, let me blast this trumpet. I promise you. As much as we love the Jesus who spread his arms out to die on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. We have got to love that Jesus who treads the nation. Treads the nations in wrath. There can be no disconnect. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves offended with the Lord. Think about it. Think about this for a minute. When Jesus came in His first coming, they were all offended. His closest guys were all offended, and they fleed the night that He died. They were all offended. They were all, He said, made to stumble that night. Now think about this. If Jesus' closest guys were made to stumble because He died, what does that say about the church in the West that's painted Jesus into a, uh, a Jesus in, in their own image and an image that they can, they can you know, deal with? What does that say about them when Jesus comes as the one that slays nations? If they're offended with Christ's death, what about with the Christ who slays nations? I, man, I pray this is just tweaking you. We've got to get these thoughts clear so we can get about being forerunners who prepare. We've got to get them clear in our understanding and get a biblical comprehension of who God is so that we can begin to get about the business of being a people who prepare. Who prepare the way for His coming. Who prepare the earth. Who cry out to others who don't understand to prepare for the Lord. One final verse, Malachi chapter three. Listen, I, I know some of these thoughts for you that, you know, you've heard me say things here and there and, and, and you've heard me do a, you know, series on these things. We teach these things in our school, but I know some of this, you know, when it, when it comes front and center for you, it may be a little bit challenging to your heart. I understand that. That's good. That's good for us. Because we, we have got to get out of fantasy land Christianity. We have got to get out of that. We've got to get into a biblical version of Christianity. One that makes clear what God's doing in the earth at the end of the age. There's 89, think about this. There are 89 chapters in the Gospels, and there's 150 plus, 150 plus chapters that talk about the end of the age. The gospel story takes place in 89 chapters, and 150 chapters are devoted to the end of the age. We have got to get what the Bible says about the end of the age, because the Bible emphasizes it more than it actually emphasizes the gospel account. Malachi 3, here we go. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger. Now, this is capital messenger. The first messenger is the forerunner, the second messenger is the Lord Jesus. He's the messenger of the covenant. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But look at that, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? I love it, because verse one, he goes, it's the, it's the one that you seek. It's the one that you delight in. He goes, but you don't know who he is. He goes, who can stand in the day of his coming? He goes, you think you want him. You think you delight in him. But who can endure it? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Look at this. And I will come near you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who exploit wage earners, widows, and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien. There's the justice issues those who exploit wage earners, widows, and orphans, and, and those who turn away an alien. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord. Beloved, those verses have never been fulfilled. The Lord Jesus has never come as a judge over the entire house of of Israel, over the the priestly tribes of Israel, and purified them till their offering was offered in purity and in righteousness. That has not been fulfilled. It's fulfilled in a measure in His first coming, but there's a greater fulfillment coming when He comes as a refiner's fire that purifies Israel and releases judgment because of those sins right there. And those sins are very interesting Because they are the sins of the Babylonian system. They are the sins of Jezebel, the end of the age. Here's the deal. Here's what he's pointing to in Malachi 3. Eastern kings, ancient eastern kings, what they would do is before they would travel from one country to another, they would send an envoy in front of them. And that envoy would be the messenger for that king. And that envoy would go into that country and he would begin to prepare that country to receive that king. They would prepare his accommodations and his meals and the travel. And they would prepare the people to be able to receive the king in a proper way. And what's happening is this. that There is a cry in this generation from the Lord to the church. Who will be a people who will prepare the way? That's the question. Will you be a people that will prepare my way? Because I don't see Malachi 3 uh, focus on one specific group. I see it saying, I will send my messenger, a messenger people. Habakkuk 2, when it talks about those that read the vision and run, that's a wide open group. It's a whosoever will group who at the end of the age, they get pricked by the Spirit of the Lord, they comprehend the time in which they live, and they recognize the necessity for preparation a couple decades in advance. A couple decades in advance. you imagine if we've got 20, 30 years? 40 years. Beloved, we've got to get about the activity of preparation. God raises up the house of prayer. It's as a mercy stroke to the regions that the house of prayer is released to. It's in light of the great shaking that's to come. And then he calls forth a messenger people who will go for before him and prepare the way for his coming. And the thing is, beloved, he's not coming as a great revivalist. He's coming as a warrior king. He's coming as a warrior king. What kind of an envoy is necessary to prepare the nations to all be overthrown? I'm not talking about natural, uh, us doing natural military stuff. That's all left to the Lord. Vengeance is the Lord's. I'm talking about living... In fasting and prayer, with a revelation of the time and the season in which we live, I'm talking about embracing the value system of the kingdom of this king. I'm talking about loving Jesus extravagantly, intimately loving Jesus and getting to know him for real. Not only as bridegroom, but also as king and judge. And preparing the way, calling out to people and and saying, listen. Listen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, it is at hand. And being prepared in heart. And preparing the earth. I believe there's a mandate on an entire generation to be a messenger people, to be a forerunner people. To understand the hour. And to be a messenger people. I believe there's a mandate. And heavily upon us in the house of prayer. Because I believe the house of prayer exists because the shaking is coming. I believe that's why it exists. And so I want to I wanna embrace this. I want to take the next six to eight weeks. I, I want to talk about this, this eschatological revolution. <laughs> it's going to happen. I want to talk about the forerunner calling and, and what that means to be a people prepared for the day of the Lord. People that are preparing the way for the Lord. I want to deal with that. I want to look at John the Baptist. I want to deal with transitional generations. When all the power bases shift in one generation and everything changes. You can look at Egypt and you can see that. You look at the days of the apostles and you can see that. Well there's one more transitional generation coming the one when the Lord returns it's the one when Jesus returns to the planet yeah good let's just stand we're going to go hard into this the next six to eight weeks we've got to get the place where our value system it doesn't simply become a good way to live day in and day out but it makes sense to us because of the time of great shaking that's coming So we live this way daily because we see the last three and a half years of this age. Yes, Lord.